All right, how are we? Good to see you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. Um, a few weeks ago, my, I have two daughters. Um, one is Hannah. She is four and a half. She always tells you she's four and a half. She never says four. She always says four and a half because when you're only four and a half, six months of time matter a lot, okay? So she'll tell you she's four and a half. And then I have Gracie, and she just turned one, and uh, we did her one-year-old birthday party. It was watermelon-themed. We had watermelon-themed cake, watermelon-themed candy, watermelon-themed watermelon. And uh, we also had my wife uh, made a watermelon-themed pinata by hand. It would make anybody on Pinterest very jealous. I was really impressed that she was able to pull it off. And we did it at uh, Curtis Park uh, right over there, and it was great. It was a lot of fun. And we did this, this big birthday party for her. And then uh, my wife took uh, Gracie home early because her, her uh, bedtime is, is earlier than Hannah's. And Hannah and I stayed around the park, and we hung out for a little bit. And, um, and I was going to tell you what happened next. Before I do that, some of you don't know me or my family. My family is um, very unusual ethnically. Uh, and by that, I mean we got a lot of different ethnicities under the same roof. So um, I am white. I don't know if you could tell that. I'm like go outside, get burned immediately, white. My wife is uh, half Peruvian. Her mom immigrated from Peru when she was 18 years old. My oldest daughter, Hannah, four and a half years old, as she would tell you, uh, is Asian. She's Taiwanese. We adopted her uh, when she was about 10 months old. And then Gracie, we had biologically. Uh, and so that makes her like part Peruvian, but she has my skin tone, so nobody would know that at all. So there I am in the park with uh, Hannah, and we're walking to the basketball court because um, we had some friends that we knew were playing over there, and she wanted to see them play. And we're on our way walking over, and um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this lady stops us. And she doesn't acknowledge me. She gets down about eye level to Hannah, and she looks at Hannah, and she starts going, Konnichiwa, 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 which is the Japanese way of saying hello. And Hannah's looking at me like, what is happening? And I'm like, I thought you could tell me what is happening. You know, like... Um, and she's looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and when you're um, part of a multi-ethnic family, you know what's happening. Like, that's, I was like, I hope this isn't happening, but it's happening. So here's this lady um, looking at Hannah. Konnichiwa, konnichiwa, konnichiwa. Um, and finally, after six or seven konnichiwas, she looks at me, and she says, um, why isn't she responding? I said, you know, I was like, okay, this is a teachable moment. This can be a redemptive moment. Um, but also, like, Papa Bear's about to come out, you know? So it's like, there's the tension in there. I said, well, she's, she's not Japanese. I said, she's not Japanese. She's Taiwanese. Like, Taiwan's an island off of mainland China. It's a whole other group of people in a whole other region of the world who have a whole different language. And she's like, well, what language do they speak there? I was like, well, they speak mostly, most of them speak Mandarin there. And she's like, well, I don't know Mandarin. And she just walked away. And, um, and I was left with this moment um, we're trying to navigate my four-and-a-half-year-old child through what just uh, happened. And I think, um, you know, for some of you, that probably doesn't seem like a very big deal, but it actually is a really big deal um, as a parent because I think particularly if you have relationships with people who aren't part of majority culture, moments like that, which are far more common uh, than you would realize if you're not part of minority culture at all, um, only reemphasize um, some really dangerous feelings of alienness and otherness and don't belongness. And there we were, like two weeks ago, trying to shepherd our little four and a half year old girl through, why did like this happen to me? Why does that never happen to you? Like, you know, nobody's ever been like, you look Irish, top of the morning to you. Are you looking for your pot of gold? Like that doesn't, that doesn't happen to me. So she's trying to navigate, like, why does this happen to me? Why doesn't happen to 
uh, dad. And it's, it's a difficult moment. It really is a difficult moment um, as a parent. And it's a common conversation we have as a family. Even last night, we were having lots of intentional conversations about just because we look different and our eyes not, might not be the same doesn't mean that that's bad or wrong. It's just, it's just different. It reflects the beautiful diversity in which God made the world. But here's what I'll say just following that uh, incident. A couple things crossed my mind. One is nowhere is really safe. I think a lot of times in Denver, we function out of this illusion that um, we're educated, we're enlightened, we're evolved. You know, like issues of, um, let's just call that racial insensitivity. Um, issues of racial insensitivity and something far more severe of prejudice or just outright uh, racism uh, doesn't exist here. It exists in the deep south. Yeah, maybe that's Mississippi's problem, but that's not our problem. And if it's our problem, maybe it's out in the suburbs, but it's not the urban problem. And it, that's just not the case. Like you just be walking through the park having just finished your watermelon cake, and that just happens. It happens to a little kid. You know, if you diversify your life, if you're part of majority culture and you listen to minority voices, what you find is this is actually a pretty frequent experience, not just at the park, but it's in workplaces, it's in schools, um, all of which will be very vocal on like, social media about how they celebrate diversity, and then they experience tremendous insensitivity within the four walls. And so it just struck me, it's like, man, like, we think we are so advanced in the year 2018, and we're not. Not even in, like, hyper-educated, enlightened Denver, Colorado. That was the first thing I thought. The second thing I thought was how much more we as the people of God have the responsibility to be a city within the city in this respect. To be different, to be countercultural, to put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, I... I, I I said last week, as we kicked off this series, part of it is about that, that like, we have had a vision from the very beginning to be beautifully countercultural, to put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. But really what that is is more of me just saying, here's like four burdens that really were birthed within me. And not birthed, but maybe um, fanned increasingly into flame while I was on sabbatical in the first half of this year. And so what I'm going to talk to you about tonight, last, last week we talked about dependency, and uh, this week we're going to talk about is reconciliation. We're going to talk about explicitly uh, ethnically, ethic, ethnic reconciliation, and we're going to walk through this in three big ideas, okay? The first is we're going to talk about why ethnic reconciliation is more than a political issue. It's actually a gospel issue. So one, why ethnic reconciliation is a gospel issue. Two, we're going to talk about starting to understand why is Colorado and Denver the way that it is, ethnically speaking, and why do we experience so much division? Three, we're going to talk about how we as a church are taking some practical steps about how we're trying to move forward and practically be countercultural as well. So, sound good? All right. Let's dive into it. I said all right before you said okay, but we're going here anyways because I'm stoked about this. All right. So let's talk first about ethnic reconciliation and the gospel. Um, the reason I want to start with this place is because I think sometimes what happens, and I've talked a good bit, I feel like I should talk more about this, but I've talked fairly consistent about my passion and our church's collective passion to grow in this area and, and aspect. And one of the most frequent pushbacks that I get from people is, I wish you wouldn't talk about politics, I wish you would just talk about the gospel. We even had people leave the church because they're like, man, you're so political, which is like really funny for me to think of because I am like the most politically apathetic person you would ever meet in your entire life. I just like want to throw up in my mouth when I just walk into a waiting room and CNN is on or Fox News or whatever. It could be either of them. I'm just like, I just turn it off, turn it off because I just vomited in my mouth. And I don't want coffee anymore. Sorry. Uh, it's like, and it's like, 
I, I want you to see that for me, a passion for ethnic reconciliation is not an attempt to be cool or relevant. There are aspects of who I am who are totally irrelevant to the culture today. But instead, that is a passion born of the scriptures. I love the Bible. I love talking about the things the Bible loves talking about. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about God creating for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation so the supremacy and the complexity of his glory might be put on display for all to see. And when it's just a group of people who all think the same and look the same and talk the same, God's glory is diminished as much as God's glory can be diminished. And we see this. We see this explicitly in the New Testament. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and Paul is perpetually telling us that our vertical reconciliation back to God through the work of Christ in the gospel is meant to produce within us a yearning and a passion and an experience of reconciliation horizontally as well. That is, when we come to a place that we understand that God has done everything, everything, everything. I'm talking like the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin, that the reason that God saves us is not because there's something good in us, but because God is good and his infinite mercy and grace gives us, provides for us everything we need for salvation so that we might be reconciled back to him. If we grasp that, the overflow of that should be that we look at other image bearers of the divine and desire reconciliation back to them as well. You look at the book of Acts, where like the first church council in the history of the world is all about like, hey, you Jews and you Gentiles, like it's not okay for you to set up your own siloed off churches where you all do your own things according to your own preferences, your own sort of cultural biases. But no, God has broken down the walls of hostility and he's created where there was once two men, one new race. And where we see this most explicitly is in the passage we just read in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul is taking on the racism of a fellow apostle, Peter. Some of you might be stunned at that, but the point of the Bible is not that there were some good people and some bad people, and the good people won, but instead there were a lot of bad people, and there was one good person named Jesus, and he reconciled and redeemed people back to himself and transformed them increasingly into his image. Peter was one of them. Like, his racism is not hidden. His racism is put on display. And what Paul in Galatians 2 is telling us about is how Peter's racism threatened the very heart of what the gospel is. It was more than a political issue. It was more than a uh, fad, but instead it threatened the very heart of what the gospel teaches. Now, here's what he says here. Verse 11, chapter 2, when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. It would have been this Gentile hub. Gentiles are just the non-Jewish people. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's what's going on. It's Peter the apostle, goes to Antioch, is preaching the gospel, is influencing the lives of non-Jewish people, that is the Gentiles, starts to develop these deep relationships with them as well. Everything seems completely fine. And then all of a sudden, a group of men known as a circumcision party, that's a terrible way to be known, sounds like the worst type of party ever, but (laughs) it's a PM joke. You can't say that in the AM. Um, So these dudes show up who, okay, so they would have been ethnically Jewish, but more than that, they would have 
prided themselves on their ethnicity to such a degree that they would have said because of the way that we look, because of the heritage that we come from, because of our ancestry, because of the color of our skin, because of the blood that flows through our veins, there is an intrinsic superiority that we bear over the people who do not have those things. There are clean people and there are unclean people, and we are superior. We are better because of the way that we look. Not only that, but it seemed like there was sort of this middle school lunchroom um, peer pressure drama going on where they're putting a lot of pressure on Peter, who would have been ethnically Jewish. And so here's what happens is that Peter is eating with his Gentile buddies and all of a sudden the circumcision party walks in and it's kind of like if you can remember in middle school, if you had like friends that weren't deemed particularly cool and then you were sitting with them and all of a sudden the jocks and the cheerleaders or whoever was cool in your relative uh, school walks in and you're kind of like, I want to sit with you guys. Like, I don't even know these people. They're lame. They sat down with me. I didn't sit down with them because I'm cooler than them. Get up and you move your lunch tray. That's basically what Peter was doing with the Jews um, except on the basis of race. Now, I want you to see in verse 14, this is the heart of the matter, and I think what I'm praying for you is if you think issues of ethnic reconciliation are merely political, where you would see explicitly from the word of God, like, you're just wrong, okay? Like, I'm going to say that as lovingly as possible, but I pray this morning that I just wouldn't really care what people think. I pray that, like, God is pleased with what I do here, so I'm just going to say, like, if you think these issues are merely political, you're wrong. And Paul is going to say it explicitly in verse 14. Now, this is interesting because, so... Paul is taking on the subtle racism of Peter. And that's one of the things that really jumped out to me this morning as well. Like, what you're looking at Peter do is pretty subtle, right? Like, you're not talking about, he was just throwing out racial slurs. He didn't get filmed secretly in a boardroom meeting. Oh my gosh, it's trending on Twitter. What am I going to do? You know, like, this isn't even a PR thing. So how does Paul tackle the subtle racism of Peter? Like, A racism so subtle, all it means is him choosing to self-segregate himself at the lunchroom. Look at this, verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there it is, right there. How does... Paul sum up and rebuke the very subtle racism of Peter. He says that it is conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel, that there is going on in Peter's heart and in his life a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Now, the question we should ask them is why? Well, Paul, if you study his life, perpetually was communicating that if you understand the full robustness of the gospel, it produces within culture both this element of humbling of those who view themselves at the top and this elevating of those who feel like they're at the bottom or treated like they are at the bottom. Now, the gospel is what God has done. The gospel is not anything we do. The gospel is that God saw our sin and he provided for us, as we said earlier, everything necessary for salvation. The reason that God loves us is because there's not something good that's produced within us, but because God is good and in his infinite grace and mercy gifts us everything we need for salvation. He does all the work, we provide all the sin, and God gifts us redemption if we will receive and believe the gospel into our lives by grace through faith. 
Now, Paul then everywhere was proclaiming this, but also teaching the implications of this. It, the implications of the gospel were meant to change everything, both individually and corporately and as a society. It's like if you took a still pond and you chucked a rock in it and ripples go everywhere. So Paul was perpetually tossing the gospel rock in the cities and it would like transform everything. It would turn it completely upside down. So he would come into these cities, and I love this about Paul. He was like an equal opportunity offender. He just like made everybody upset. I love it about Paul. Like he would just go into these cities, and he would deconstruct those people who would view themselves at the top of the social hierarchy because of the color of their skin or because of the heritage from which they came. Right? There was something, certain humbling, this humility and this transparency and this vulnerability that would be produced within those who were at the top of the social food chain because of their history or their experience because of the color of their skin. Because any sort of false belief that the reason that God would favor us, which, you know, spoiler, just because you might have more money than other people doesn't mean that you're being favored by God. I have met a lot of rich people who are even happy, to be honest with you. But the reason that you are at the top, I'm air quoting if you're listening to the podcast, at the top is because not God was like, man, like, look at what you guys did. Look at what you produced. You get favor from me. You get blessing from me. No, the one thing that really matters, the opinion of the one person in the universe who actually matters the most is not earned, but freely given. And consequently, it has us turn our eyes in on ourselves to have this great humility about why God loves us as well as this vulnerability to say we then can be honest, both personally, as we talked about last week, but even as a culture about our shortcomings and failings and not try to rewrite history and not try to change books and not try to diminish the wicked things that people who looked like us looked like in the past and not try to exaggerate the good things and not try to relativize by being like, well, there's other parts of the world where people did this thing and so we did, isn't that bad? No, a vulnerability and an ability to say, no, like the reason God loved us is not because we performed better than everyone else. And consequently, we can be honest about our shortcomings in our history. And so there's this great humility. But also in every culture, nobody wants to talk about this or say this, but there are people who are at the bottom. People who are labeled or listed as something less than human, something less than image bearers of the divine. They are reduced to stereotypes. They are reduced to biases. They are reduced to something subhuman. And Paul would burst into these cities because every city would have them and he would preach the gospel to them and he would say, hey, for you people that everybody is saying is less than subhuman, you are elevated because you are not worthless. You are not subhuman. You are not just a prejudice. You are not a stereotype. You are an image bearer of the divine. You are the most precious thing made by the God who made everything. And consequently, Paul would then walk into these cities just as he would do in Denver, Colorado today, and he would say, hey, to the people who are on top and proud about it, sit down. Hey, those of you who are being just marginalized and seen as something subhuman, you get up. All are level at the foot of the cross. All are level at the foot of the cross. And Paul would just come in and he'd just say that again and again and again and again. And that's why he's saying to Peter, your fundamental misunderstanding of the people that you won't even share a meal with reflects your fundamental misunderstanding of what God has done in the gospel. That's why these issues matter. That's why we talk about these things, okay? Two, let's start then to understand where we've been. And I put starting two on purpose because I think sometimes what happens is, um, you know, we almost try to do these like... Uh, 
diversity initiatives, right? It's like Michael Scott Diversity Day. We talk about this one time, and then we're just like, it's like, I don't want to be that, okay? Like, we need to have a posture of learning for a lifetime, okay? Things are not good. Things are not good, all right? And I want us to understand um, kind of where we've been. That is not just as a country, but I want to talk to you briefly about what's been going on in Denver and what's been going on in Colorado. I'm struck by the divisiveness, not just in our country, but in our city. And where I'm really reminded of this is when I meet somebody who moved from somewhere that's actually like pretty diverse. And not only just diverse, but like reconciled. So that is not just a bunch of different types of people, a bunch of different types of people doing life together. And so people will move here from other cities and I'll say, hey, like, what's your perception of Denver the first couple of weeks you've lived here? And they'll say to me, I had this conversation all the time. They'll say to me, like, you guys are crazy divided. And they're not just talking about the church. They're talking about everything. They're talking about the breweries. They're talking about the parks. They're talking about the library. They're talking about the schools. They're talking about everything. Like, if you just kind of open your eyes, like, we are not. Like, I feel like Coloradans love to pride themselves on how uh, evolved and enlightened we are. It's like, we are not functioning in much diversity, if we're just honest. Now, I think it's important to understand where we've been so we can understand our present reality and make sense of kind of hopefully how we can write a different story and how we as a church can fight to write a different story in the life of this community. So I want to walk you through a bit of the history of the community in which we live. I'll do everything from the past 100 years or so just so you can kind of recognize, um, have this be somewhat uh, recent. So can we go ahead and bring up that uh, first picture? That's the KKK. Picture's taken um, on May 31st, 1926. Anybody want to guess what street that is? That's Larimer Street. That's the street that runs right in front of our church. Right there, that's where they marched down less than 100 years ago. I didn't even notice this, but it's like, if you actually look close, this is the first time I've seen this, but if you look at this, a lot of those men seem to be African-American. Imagine what was going through their minds as they saw this. You know, Denver was segregated. A lot of times people think segregation was just an issue of the Deep South. It wasn't. It was our problem as well. And what was happening in the 1900s was um, there was a lot of pressure to desegregate, and so organizations like the KKK rose up to find subtle and not-so-subtle ways to try to sort of keep the ethnicities um, that weren't white in their place. I'm definitely using air quotes right now if you're listening to the podcast, okay? Please uh, know that. If we can go to the next one, <clears throat> segregation um, seemed like it would increasingly not be a long-term solution in Denver. What arose was a uh, systemic way to sort of functionally keep segregation going and to destabilize, uh, particularly the African-American community. Uh, this is a map from uh, April, or August 15, 1938, that illustrates the systemic uh, decision for uh, Denver to do what was known as redlining. So that is, that if you look at anything in red, this is where the minority population of Denver was concentrated. The policy, like we're talking like the policy, the system was that if you were in that region and if you were a minority, you were not allowed to be given a house loan because you were just sort of labeled as being intrinsically untrustworthy and dangerous. 
And consequently, you had these entire regions of Denver where if you were a certain color, it didn't matter your education, didn't matter what you looked like, didn't matter what you did for a living, you were not allowed to be given a loan, and you were put in a place where you were forced to perpetually rent as opposed to own. Now, when you think about this thoughtfully, what you have to understand is in America, probably the most popular way that wealth is passed from one generation to the next is through home ownership. You know, some of you... I'm about to give an analogy. I'm not saying you can perfectly understand. I'm just saying start to wrap your mind around this. Some of you are put in a place where you have to perpetually rent, don't you? And when you have to perpetually rent, it means you don't have the power. A lot of people are talking about this today. You don't have the power. Somebody else owns it, and consequently, they can raise the rent. They can kick you out. They can sell. Like, you don't have the power. Now, take that. Extrapolate that anxiety at a personal level to an entire race of people that fill our city. And think about how an entire group of people could be destabilized for multiple generations as a consequence. You fast forward, we go to the next picture. If we zoom in, this is our neighborhood. So this was a redlined neighborhood. I brought up a laser pointer here. We are sitting, here is, let's see, here's Lawrence, so that would be Larimer right there. And then here is 33rd. So we're sitting right here. You see that? Try to keep my hand still right there. All this would have been industrial at this time, and so that's why it wasn't redlined. There was no people living there. It was just factories, basically. But you can see, here's uh, California Street. There's Welton. This is where Five Points is right here. This is Curtis Park right here. It was policy. They say, if you lived in that region, if your skin wasn't white, you weren't allowed to own a home. Eventually, redlining was determined to be illegal, and so a lot of residents in Colorado and in Denver took matters into their own hands. Um, what happened is there was a lot of tension, and what one of the KKK's greatest initiatives in the 1900s was, was to keep minorities on this side of Downing Street, so Downing that runs right there, um, to keep the minorities on this side, and so they would find all sorts of creative ways to keep minorities from crossing over that major divider of Downing Street. And so they would do things like establish what were known as white-only covenants. Um, people in those neighborhoods, we're talking Cole, Clayton, Whittier, and other parts of Colorado as well, would have these different covenants where they would come together. I'll give you an example of one right here. This is straight from one of these white-only covenants that existed in the 1900s in Colorado. None of said building sites or any part thereof shall at any time be used or occupied by or sold, leased or given to any person or persons of any race except the white race. But this restriction shall not prohibit any of the occupants from having employees who are not of the white race. So to put it far clearer, that basically if you owned a home, the policy was block by block, we're going to organize to not sell those homes to non-white people or even let non-white people rent, but if you want to employ a non-white person, that's fine, you can do that. The KKK was even more aggressive than that. Um, so, for example, can we bring up this uh, next picture? This guy's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joseph Westbrook. What was happening also throughout the 1900s is when uh, the minorities in this community were sort of not uh, accepting these boundaries that were put around them, the KKK actually took more aggressive uh, means. And so what they would do is they would do things like go out to Table Mountain and they would burn a giant cross so that people from the city could see, hey, if you get out of place, um, we're here. 
they would organize and terrorize in this community. And so if a, uh, a black family uh, started to build a house that was kind of beyond the boundary, they would come and they would organize overnight and they would come and they would uh, light stuff on fire, they would ruin foundations, they would just do whatever it takes to terrorize to such a degree that they could intimidate to keep the minorities on this side of Downing Street. This gentleman, Dr. Joseph Westbrook, was actually African-American, but was so light-skinned that he actually snuck into and infiltrated the KKK. I feel like they've got to make a movie of this, because like, this dude is one bad dude. And um, this picture is actually from a, a, a museum in our neighborhood. And so this guy, he would go to the KKK meetings, and he'd be like, yeah, I'm white. And he'd listen, and um, he'd listen to what they were doing, and he'd learn about kind of here's the particular strategies that are come in. They're going to come into five points on this particular night. They're going to terrorize this particular home and this particular home in order to intimidate. And then he would kind of gather all the information at the meeting and come back and tell um, the people in the five points community, hey, this is what's happening, so they could prepare for it. I'll just give you another example of stuff that went down in Colorado. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this is like exhaustive. I'm just trying to give you a few examples so that you're aware of the history of where we come from. The early 1940s, I think it was 1941, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor on February 12th, 1942. FDR, who's the president at the time, a lot of people look at as maybe one of the greatest presidents in the history of the United States signs Executive Order 9066, where he puts into writing, the successful prosecution of the war requires every possible protection against espionage and against sabotage to national defense. What it actually means is the relocation of over 100,000 Japanese Americans, the majority of whom are American citizens, forcibly removed from their homes, relocated into camps up and down the West Coast, as well as in the state of Colorado. I'll show you a picture of one right here. This is actually the camp this is in Granada, Colorado, and a camp that was set up for Japanese Americans, most of whom were US citizens, forcibly removed and relocated. There was a little bit of pushback, people saying, hey, you can't treat US citizens this way. The guy who was in charge of this was a gentleman, that's a kind way, a guy named General John DeWitt. His pushback to this was that a Jap's a Jap. It makes no difference whether the Jap is a citizen or not. And another uh, leader of this from the US military said, I am determined that if they have one drop of Japanese blood in them, they must go to camp. If we can go to the next picture, you can just get a better look at this. Like, I think it's probably hard for a lot of us to believe this happened in US soil in the 1900s. Go to the next picture. and just people packed behind barbed wire fences, a mom and her daughter with tags, with numbers identifying who they are. U.S. citizens. The point is, if you don't understand where we as Coloradans and Denverites come from, you won't understand the present day reality. And we have the responsibility to understand these tragedies and atrocities and to understand with great empathy 
um, something other than maybe what the majority culture experience in our country has been. And that when, you know, even rhetoric is used like, this is going to sound like I'm making a political statement, and I'm not trying to be like politically clever, but I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be like, I'm just, I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to tell you what I think, and we'll let the chips fall where they may. But when we use in public culture, in a celebratory way, make America great again, you realize there's a lot of people that this country has never been great to. When we say things like, well, September 11, 2001 was the first um, uh, moment of domestic terrorism in the history of the United States, it's like, what, what do you call a group of guys dressed the same with hoods on their hat coming to this neighborhood and blowing up people's houses and churches? What do you call the bombing of churches all throughout the South that would lead to the death of little children? Like, if that's not domestic terrorism, I don't know what is. I heard somebody say this um, this morning, is that like, if we are ignorant about our history, it's sort of like a tree, not or it's sort of like a leaf at the end of a tree, not understanding that like, the tree was there in the first place, this is where we came from. And that's what our heart's desire is. Again, I'm not just trying to throw like, sad stuff at you so you feel bad, but it's like, we should lament these tragedies in our country's history, okay? Even, let me speak bluntly to the white people, even if it's the people who look like us that perpetrated those crimes, so that we might not replicate what came before us. And diminishing them and dismissing other people's pain is the most dehumanizing thing we can do. And we desire to be countercultural, to be agents of God's hands of reconciliation in an age of division. Third, let's talk then about how we can um, be a city in the city. I think a lot of times people are wondering, how can we uh, practically take steps forward? And so again, this isn't like, here's our three-point initiative to fix all these problems. We're just trying to build awareness over the many more years that we have of doing this together. That's all we're trying to do. We're building awareness and building intelligence to push us to be people of reconciliation. But here are a few things we're going to do in the next, let's say, six months, just so you know what our church is practically doing. One, we are listening, learning, empowering. Um, that's actually been happening behind the scenes for the last couple of years, and one of God's greatest acts of grace in my life is intentionally diversifying my life. It really is. Um, we are not okay when we're alone. We are not, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be around people who only look like him as well. And the intentional kind of listening and learning and increasingly empowering um, the non-white people in the life of our church has been one of the best things that's happened in the life of our church and really, really thankful for that too. Um, we're going to do some neighborhood learning experiences. There's great opportunities to learn in this community, and I think probably most of us haven't taken advantage of this. There's uh, an African-American history museum at the intersection of, I think it's 25th and Welton Street. It's like less than a mile away from here. The entire third story is all about the history of this community. And most of us haven't been up there. And so we're working with these people um, who work there. We're not trying to just kind of be like, we got the solution. Like, you know, so Steph, one of our, uh, our full-time staff, has been um, talking to the ladies that run that floor over there and saying, hey, how can like a church learn and help? And they're really excited. And so we're trying to, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this. But just so you know, here's some, that's, that's in motion as well. Third, um, 
We're going to do some more Love Thy Neighbor dialogues. If you were here a couple years ago, we did something called the Love Thy Neighbor Forum over at Exto, where we had an entire conversation about um, racial reconciliation. We're going to try to continue those with people in the life of our church. We'll do it here, and again, more details will be about that, but we're going to do a couple of those in the fall. We'll have some resources leading up to that to hopefully help you uh, grow in intelligence and awareness as well. And four, um, we're going we're gonna to pray a lot for this. Um, I've felt the weight of this all day. I'm like a type A person who always knows exactly how I kind of want um, my day of sermon preparation and delivery to go, and none of that happened today. Um, none of that happened today. I just started, you know, I was like looking at a laptop, and I got five minutes in, and I'm like, man, you don't prepare yourself into this one. I shut the laptop, and I just like walked and prayed through the neighborhood. Um, because it really is, like, these issues are so significant that, like, and you're not going to, like, watch a documentary and immediately be woke. It's like, like, we need the Spirit of God to so produce within us a love and a grasp of the depths and the riches of the gospel that we are willing to sacrifice and be humble and be transparent and vulnerable and repentant so that we might be people of reconciliation and age of division. And so... Um, why don't we go to God together and ask that he would do that, and then we'll talk about some ways to respond. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for you, and um, we're thankful that you hear us, and I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, produce that within us, that you would um, give us the, uh, the transparency and the humility and the vulnerability to um, see where we are guilty. Um, I feel the weight of the burden of so much self-righteousness in Denver, both in and outside of the church in regards to these issues, and I think most people want to think the problem is somewhere else. Um, I think even as we talk about these issues, as I learn about these issues, I feel like a lot of times I'm like, yes, yeah, so-and-so should hear about this. God, forgive us for so quickly dismissing our own sin against our brothers and sisters and fellow image bearers. And forgive us for our self-righteousness to believe that the problem is with somebody else other than me. And so, God, I pray that even in this time, you would produce within us uh, an authentic brokenness, um, an authentic awareness that we do not love people the way that we should love them. God, let us never believe that we are um, too sophisticated for the great commandments of loving you and loving our neighbor. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would produce that in the life of this church. Amen.